them a power base they had never dreamed of before. They bought the police, they owned the mayor and most of City Hall, they intimidated the crusading newspapers, and laughed at the law. But money brought its own special problem. Everybody could see how vast the market was, how profitable. They all wanted a cut. And that was where he finally came into his own. Whole districts of Chicago degenerated into war zones, as gangs and syndicates and bosses fought like lions for territory. With the neurosyphilis gradually eroding his rationality, he emerged from the ranks of his contemporaries as the most ruthless, the most successful, and the most feared gang boss of them all. Quirks became vainglorious eccentricities. He opened soup kitchens for the poor. For slain colleagues, he threw funeral parades which brought the entire city to a halt. He craved publicity and held press conferences to promote his magnanimity in giving people what they really wanted. He sponsored broke jazz musicians. His flamboyance became as legendary as his brutality. At its height, his tyranny was sufficient to be raised at cabinet meetings in the White House. Nothing the authorities did ever seemed to make the slightest difference. Arrests, inquiries, indictments. He bought his way out with his money, while his reputation and associates kept witnesses silent. So government did what government always does when confronted with an opposition which can't be brought down by fair and legal means. It cheated. His trial for tax evasion was later described as a legal lynching. The Treasury made up new rules, and proved he was guilty of breaking them. A man who was both directly and indirectly responsible for the deaths of hundreds of people was sentenced to eleven years in jail over delinquent taxes, to the total of $215,080. His atrocious reign was ended, but his life took another sixteen years to wither. In his latter years, with neurosyphilis raging in his head, he lost all grip on reality, seeing visions and hearing voices. His mind now roamed through a purely imaginary state. His body ceased to function in a peaceful enough manner on January 25, 1947, in a big house in Florida, surrounded by his grieving family. But when you are already utterly insane, there is little noticeable difference from your very own delusory universe and the distorted torment of the beyond into which your soul slips. Over six hundred years passed. The entity which emerged from the beyond into the fractured, bleeding body of Brad Lovegrove, fourth assistant manager, Urban Sanitation Maintenance Division of the Tarosa Metamec Corporation of New California, didn't even realize he was back in living reality. Not to start with, anyway. The first possessed being to reach New California did so on a cargo starship from Norfolk, one of the twenty-two insurgents Edmund Rigby had helped possess in Boston. His name was Emmett Morden, and as soon as he reached the planet's surface, he began the process of conquest, snatching people off the streets and the autoways, inflicting agonizing injuries to weaken their spirits and open their minds to receive the souls in the beyond. A small band of possessed filtered unobtrusively through the boulevards of St. Angeles in the days which followed, slowly building up their own ranks. Like all of the possessed emerging across the Confederation, they had no distinct strategy, simply a single driving impulse to bring more souls back from the beyond. But this one among them was of no use to the cause. His mind shattered, he could relate to no external stimuli. He shouted hysterical warnings to his brother Frank, he wept, he delivered huge monologues about his shoe factory, where he promised he'd give them all work, tiny spits of energy would fly from him without warning. He giggled constantly, 
he shat his pants and started slinging it about. Whenever they brought him food, his energistic ability would turn it to the image of hot, spicy pasta, which gave off an appalling stink. After two days, the growing cabal simply left him behind in the disused shop they'd been using as a base. Had they bothered to check him before they left, they would have noticed that the behavior was slightly more moderate, the talk more coherent. Psychotic thought patterns which had formed in the early 1940s and run on unchecked for six centuries had finally begun to operate within a healthy neuron structure once more. There were no chemical imbalances, no spirochete bacteria, not even traces of mild alcohol toxicology, for Lovegrove didn't drink. His sanity gradually returned as thought processes began to move in more natural cycles. He felt his mind and memories coming together, as though he were emerging from the worst cocaine trip ever, his long-time vice.